Good evening, and welcome to Direct Impact Broadcasting, the station of growth and transformation. Affiliate of Creative Broadcasting presents Leadership Tidbits with Coach T. Wilson, with your host, Taiwana Wilson, as she welcomes her guest to the studio. Welcome to Leadership Tidbits with Coach T. Wilson. I am your host, Taiwana Wilson. A little bit about myself. I am your award-winning leadership maven, medical laboratory scientist by background, best-selling author, owner and chief leadership coach at Trendy Elite Coaching and Consulting Services, executive director with the John Maxwell team, Maxwell Disc Certified Consultant, Send Out Cars Referral Partner, and co-owner of Direct Impact Broadcasting Radio Station. Before we bring on my special guest, I want to share a few announcements. This weekend, again, this weekend, very excited, the authors of the Girlfriend Code Sorority Edition will be at the Courtyard Marriott in Alexandria, Virginia, on July 27th for the official book signing. The event is free, and registration can be done on Eventbrite, so you can look it up, official DMV book signing for Sorority Code. I'm also looking for trailblazers to join the Leadership Tidbit book collaboration. We are looking for diverse leaders from all industries able to provide nuggets of wisdom in the realm of leadership, personal growth, and communication. For more info about this project or ways that you can get involved, you can email Leadership Tidbits book at trendyelitellc.com. All of our leadership assessments are still on sale and available at www.coachtwilson.com. Also, thank you to my media mentors, Ms. Ashley Lutzel and Ms. Kimberly McLemore of Talk Radio and TV Network, LLP. Today's special guest, Tashana thomas Odebill. Tashana currently serves as the Director of Managed Care for TriHealth, a $2 billion health system in Cincinnati, Ohio. She has nearly 20 years of management experience and proven performance leadership with managed care, payer contracting, and strategies. Tashana is responsible for contractual relationship management valued at over $1.3 billion in revenue. Before joining TriHealth in 2017, she worked for both payer and provider organizations in various healthcare leadership and administration roles. Tashana received a bachelor's degree in healthcare business administration from DeVry University, and she is a graduate of the Urban League of Greater Southwestern Ohio, Southwest Ohio Urban Leaders Development Program. She is passionate about achieving personal and professional growth. In January of 2019, she launched her own consulting firm, Tashana Thomas Consulting, a company geared toward developing innovative strategies for small businesses, professional or personal growth. She is also the co-owner and CFO for Thomas Rehabbing, General Contracting, and Construction Management. Lastly, she's a speaker and co-author of It Takes Money, Honey, a book that is a 365 devotional about freedom, faith, and finances, and working on her second book titled Hidden Pain, a personal story of resiliency. Tashana is committed to public service and is actively involved in the community as a member of the Board of Directors for the Urban League of Greater Southwestern Ohio, Southwest Ohio Healthcare Financial Management Association, and the St. Aloysius Organization. 
She has received several awards and recognitions for her leadership and service, including 2018 Top 15 Businesswomen of the Year. Tashana is a proud parent of two children, Malachi and Jordan. She enjoys cooking, traveling, leading, and organizing community events. She spends her free time volunteering with youth ministries, mentoring small business owners, and developing young professionals. Good evening, good evening, Tashana. How are you doing? Good evening. I'm great. Thank you for having me on your show, Taiwana. It's really a blessing and an honor to be here and be able to kind of share and talk about leadership and just I'm hoping that I have an impact on many. So I thank you for your leadership and creating and leading and organizing this effort. My pleasure. I'm happy to have you here and happy for the listeners to learn a little bit more about you. So we'll jump right in. So can you tell the listeners about your leadership journey and how did you get to where you are today? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So I guess I'll kind of start out on my journey. I'll I'll go way back to when I was about 16 years old, raised in a single-parent home. My mom raised the three of us, and as many people have in single-parent homes, we had life challenges and a lot of adversities. But I had a different level of determination just seeing the struggle that my mom had went through with raising three kids on her own. And I just did not really ever want to live that way. And I wanted to see life in a different realm. So I decided to do some things differently. So at the age of 16, I started my, uh, well, actually 15, but I kind of started my hustle. I worked three jobs at the age of 16 because at the time in the summer, if you, if you know anything about being a minority or being a minor, you are only allowed to work a certain number of hours. So I was only eligible to work four hours at this place or five hours on this day. And so I would just use it to my leverage. So I found a place, a couple places that were in a shopping mall, a strip shopping mall, three places in a row and got hired there and uh, would leave from one job and go to the next and leave from that job and go to the next because I was on this, what I would consider at that time, this financial freedom journey and just wanted my life to look a lot different. So graduated from high school and did not go to college right out of high school. Didn't have the opportunity just because it just was not an opportunity and it wasn't something that was right for me at the time. So I continued to work. I progressed my way through actually starting in a healthcare what I would consider like a patient care assistant role. And from that point on, I was able to uh, launch an opportunity that came available at Humana. So I started my career in 1995 at Humana as a claims adjuster. And in that role, I was able to expand and get several promotions during that time. I stayed at Humana for a total of about 13 years. But after being there for just about five to six years, I had a man that's currently one of my mentors today come and talk to me about a skill that he saw, and he talked about how resilient I was and how I was able to really be able to move quickly and deal with rather complex issues and talked about my flexibility and adaptability. And he also, at the time, was very transparent about the role I was in and how much money I was making and how less money I was making compared to my peers. And he mentioned that the reason why I was making that much money less than my peers is because I didn't have an education. 
And at the time, you know, lack of having a degree at Worlds was very important to Humana. So it didn't matter how much experience you had, how much you worked. You know, that, that piece of paper and that degree was an integral part of, you know, how they viewed their, their, their leaders and how they wanted their leaders to, you know, lead the organization. And so he encouraged me to go to school, and I decided to go ahead and go to school. So I went to school full-time. While I was working full-time, um, got my bachelor's degree in healthcare administration. It was not an easy journey, but it was one worth. I graduated magnum cum laude. There's a different level of passion that comes with, you know, having to pay for school and making sure you get those grades so that you can get tuition reimbursement and when you have to pay for it yourself. So I think, you know, that was very helpful in my career because I was able to do that. And no sooner than I graduated from college, having that degree, I got several offered several opportunities that I wasn't even looking for with different organizations, one of which was UC Health. So I went to UC Health, and I went to go negotiate and manage contracts for their group. And UC Health here in Cincinnati was an organization of 17 individual physician groups, and they were looking for one person to bring those 17 individual groups under one umbrella, under one organization. Um, and when you're dealing with multiple physicians and you're dealing with different backgrounds and groups, it's pretty difficult to kind of get the reimbursement and the compensation on the level playing field. For example, you know, neurologists, they do things, they, they, they're brain surgeons. They're doing a lot of testing. They're doing a lot of things different than what a primary care would do. So I was tasked with creating a business model and a reimbursement strategy that allowed these 17 groups to come together and to get reimbursed under one structure. I would say that was some of my most proud work <laughs> because it's very difficult when you're trying to advocate for physicians and you're trying to advocate you know, their worth and their value for the thing that they went to school for, that they think is way more important than any other specialty because, you know, they pride themselves on their work. So dealing with the insurance companies and trying to negotiate contracts and leverage some of the specialties within that organization, understanding that a typical EMT is not just, they're not, they're not looking and diagnosing ear infections. You know, our ENTs at UC Health were the ones that were removing cancer from your throat and cancer that spread from your throat to your ear. So they're doing things that are way more complex. So building those relationships with those physicians and understanding their why, why were they doing it, and what differentiates them from any other ENT specialist that they're doing. So actually doing some of that work and working with some of those physicians really helped leverage my area in growth and opportunity and help to understand how to build strategies around payers, payers and, and, and their reimbursement. Wow. Wow, that, that's a lot. And what I really enjoyed about your your journey is that, and I say this all the time coming from a disadvantaged background, is that it doesn't matter how you start but how you finish. So regardless if you were able to go to college right away, you were willing to work and working since you were 16 years old and hustling, as we say it, and finding a way, paying for school yourself, and then finding that mentor that really helped you go to the next level. Negotiation is a, a very difficult thing, especially in the healthcare arena. So kudos to you for being able to communicate and at least find a happy medium 
between the the healthcare provider uh, and the hospital system. So that's that's huge to be able to pick up on that skill, transferable skill at that. So Tashana, what strengths and experiences do you feel are important for you to thrive and make your mark in that managed care arena where a lot of us may be unfamiliar, where you're negotiating and managing those multi-million dollar contracts? Great question. So a couple things. Interestingly enough, I was just Someone just asked me, it was one of our senior medical directors, he said, you know, is your job, you know, 70% building relationships and 30% skills and knowledge? And I was like, well, you know, wow, you know, that's an interesting question. Should I be offended? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm asking that question is because, you know, you know, relationships are foundational in any type of business, right? But when you're negotiating contracts, it is a certain skill set that you must have and a certain level of knowledge that you must have because you have to make sure that you are leveraging leveraging the contract that you're negotiating in the best and most possible way. So I would say some of the foundational skills to negotiating contracts is basically, one, you have to understand what you're negotiating and what your walk away is. What are you planning to get out of it? You have to look beyond the rate. So A lot of physicians, they're like, you know, get me an increase, get me an increase. I want to see an increase. But we have to look beyond the rate. So one of the things that is key in my industry is staying up on the industry trends. Healthcare has transformed over the last 20 years dramatically. And so you have to stay in front of the trends and understand where the organization is going, where the where the healthcare industry is going itself. So it's also just, you know, not about negotiating for the physicians, I negotiate on the behalf of the hospitals too. And so you have to look at the revenue generators. You know, a lot of things are going to bundle payment methodologies. We have accountable care organizations, our managed care companies that we deal with, the Anthems and the United and Health Cares of the World and Humana, they're no longer paying fee for, for fee-for-service-based compensation. So fee-for-service is where, hey, I go to the doctor, I'm sick, pay my copayment, and the doctor gets reimbursed the fee. You know, fee-for-service is pretty much trending down and going away. They are holding us as healthcare providers accountable for the care that we're providing. So they want to make sure that, hey, if Tashana is diagnosed with high blood pressure, that she's actually coming in seeing the physician, that the physician is actually treating the service, that she's actually filling her prescriptions on time, that they're actually managing the care. And so that's when our value-based compensation model comes in. So you have to understand the components of a value-based compensation model and making sure that you don't have too much at risk, but making sure you have an infrastructure in place to kind of close the gap for the care that you're managing so that you can maximize the reimbursement. So that's really key. Another um, key piece to the managed care perspective and as a, as a whole is the contract language. makes no sense if you just sign a contract um, and you do it just for the midst of getting a rate increase. You have to make sure that that contract is operating the way you intended it to. So there are different provisions that have to go in the contract and that you got to make sure that are reciprocal, you know, not just benefiting the insurance company, that they benefit the provider as well. So there's things that you have to make sure that one word or one phrase can totally change the intent of a contract. So it's very clear and distinct language that you need to be looking for and negotiating that best-in-class language. You want to make sure that you're taking out anything that's not advantageous to the provider. 
that they have enough time to kind of file their claims, appeal the claims? What happens if they're not paying me the claims? All of these provisions are really essential when you're negotiating managed care agreements. Um, and then you also got to make sure you got to check into the revenue, um, our revenue cycle to make sure that we're getting what we negotiated. What difference does it make if I negotiate a 5% increase um, on the behalf of TriHealth? If we don't net that increase, we never see it. And we may not see it because they're denying claims. We not, may not see it because they're delaying payment. We may not see it because they forgot to increase a certain service line. So it's important for us to monitor contract performance as well. And this is, you know, a managed care contracting is a niche. It's, it's, it's very detailed. It's, it can sometimes be very tedious. It takes a person that has a certain amount of determination, skill, and will to be able to get in here and do the job. But I think that, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I got the opportunity, having been at Humana and having the opportunity to go in a claims role and see how the claims were paid and build my base knowledge around those services that were provided on that claim and how they impact each of the physicians helped me to understand physician-based compensation and get into this role in the first place. I'm very thankful for that opportunity. Wow. That's a, a big deal, especially, you know, when I think about contracts and not even just in the scope of healthcare, but as you said, understanding the language and actually reading it all the way through. I actually had a chance to talk with some high schoolers yesterday, and one of the key things I said is you got to be able to read, you got to be able to write, and, and do those things well. And so how many times do we have it just the, the average person is not reading contracts or understanding the language all the way through? So much less being able to negotiate on where you're talking about billion dollar contracts in a healthcare system. So that's that's huge. That's a, a huge skill uh to be able to have. It's important for our next generation of leaders to not only hear your successes and accomplishments, but also about your growing pains along the way. So sometimes us as leaders, we talk about things that, that went well. They hear our, our bios, and it talks about all of our successes. And with today's generation, our kids are, are afraid to fail. They're afraid to try different things. So I definitely want the leaders to, to understand that with success, also come some learning lessons along the way. So can you share with the listeners a few of your leadership growth opportunities and what learning lessons did you gain from them? Sure. So exactly, exactly what you said. There's always growing pains that come along the way. So, you know, being in a leadership role and having been in a leadership role for the last 20 years has given me an opportunity myself to grow tremendously in that space. So one of the things that I find is key and that was vital for me is actually listening. And so listening is a really important skill that you have to make sure that you get under your belt because a lot of times people talk to be heard. And so if someone is feeling a certain type of way or they need additional training or they're not understanding things and your response is to immediately go fix it and you're not listening on really what the core message that they're trying to get across, it will hinder you from any opportunities that you're trying to make to coach that person and it, it, it masks your flaws if you're not listening. 
you just go try to fix it. So a lot of times I will have employees come to me and they will say, this is not working or this this issue is happening. And I'm like, okay, I'm automatically going to fix it mode. So I never listened to them and I never went back to empower them to fix it because I'm the type of leader that's very assertive and I just want to get things done and I wanted to write, work the right way. So I wasn't letting the people that report to me have that, that opportunity to be empowered to fix things themselves. And so with that being said, I became overwhelmed in my position. A lot of my positions I would take on stuff and not allow my team the opportunity to grow because I would just go and take it on and handle it. So I would say being patient, listening to things, recruit smart. I say recruit smart because a lot of times we hire for, oh, this person is really good, or maybe I worked with them in this capacity and, oh, I thought they were smart. But, you know, you didn't do your due due diligence and you always want to try to give someone a chance, but you want to make sure that you recruit smart and you're retaining the people and you're training the people so that they can help you meet your goals for the department, the organization, and for themselves individually. If you're not giving them an opportunity to kind of learn and grow, then and giving them that feedback that's vital, important, you, you won't be able to be successful in your role. And so what I've learned over time is that I really do focus on a lot of my team members. I focus on the things that are that they're doing really great at, and then we focus on the things that they're not doing so great at. I read this book, and I can't even recall the book, but it talks about how some of the Native Americans, they're built, uh, they're culturally built to focus on things that they're not great at. So, for example, my son's really great at basketball. He may be not as great at soccer. And so with the Native American students, they focus, you know, the focus is on soccer. You keep learning the soccer and you keep, doing it until you master it and you become great at it. So I would say that in my role, I've been I've, I've been very transparent about trying to make sure that I build a team that's effective and efficient and that we're leveraging all their strengths and weaknesses at the same time. Have you ever felt as you were in your corporate space or in your community space that you know, you felt like that you were working on a project and it, it could have been better. You felt like it wasn't quite a win, but you really felt like it, eh, this was probably a loss in this situation. Have you felt like that going through either of those spaces? Because I know you're very involved in the community space as well. Yeah, so um, I would say more particularly at work, and we'll, we can talk about the community space here in a second, but more particularly at work, you know, our negotiations are very strategic. So I create a what I would consider playbook that's about 90 to 100 pages long, and it tells you each area that we need to focus on and the why we need to focus on this area and what we need to gain out of that. And what I've found is that I – you know, I could take three to six months developing these strategies, and I share them with the team, and they all collaborate and they add to it. But what I've learned is in, in the middle of negotiations, when things get intense, I don't refer back to it. And so I lose sight of what the focus is because I will get into these conflicting situations where we're back focusing on the money. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I have a fiduciary responsibility to try health, and I'm advocating on the behalf to get them the most maximize the revenue out of that agreement. 
But what happens is we kind of can lose sight of, you know, uh, and this happens to me often in negotiations, what I'm trying to accomplish because things get very controversial and they almost get personal. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I've been in negotiation sessions where I've been called liars. I've been kicked out of rooms. I've been told I wasted my gas, get in the car and don't come back. I've been told. So you lose kind of sight and then you, you lose your own patience with it. And then you're mm-hmm. thriving back. And so I would say one of the things that I learned most, that's most importantly that I have to remind myself of is that this isn't my money. Yes, I have a responsibility to try help, but I can't get so upset and so angry where I am losing my patience with my team. I lose my patience with myself. I bring it home. And so sometimes I really just lose focus of what the ultimate goal of the negotiation is. And so I would say one of the growing pains that I had to learn and experience is patience and creating healthy boundaries for myself when I'm at work to not let people cross over in that space. You know, don't let your blood pressure rise because this person said this. Okay, yes, they just called you a liar. They said this. Okay, so that's their issue, not yours. Just focus Mm -hmm. on the strategy that you spent three to six months focusing on. And then you just, and, and what happens very easily is that, it goes out the window. And so now I'm trying to refocus and center myself back on, you know, what's the end game? What is my why? And focus the team back on that. You know, what is our end game? What is our why? We can't lose focus of that. So that happens a lot when I'm working on these large projects. And, you know, traditionally speaking, I can have three to four negotiations going on at a time. And what I learned in that is that you, everything has to come at a space, everything at a pace, at a certain pace, and that I had to be more strategic about when the contract's open. So what that means is sometimes I, I bake a CPI language in there that says, hey, every year I'm going to get an increase and I don't have to open it up unless I want to. Or, hey, I'm going to make this agreement five years, I'm going to make this one three, or I'm going to make this one two, because it's very stressful. It's a stressful environment to be in when you have – five multi-million dollar contracts that you're negotiating at one time that's all getting ready to term. And then for contract terms, I mean, it's bad for both organizations and it puts the patients in the middle too. So, yeah. so Definitely definitely understand that. (laughs) I've seen it where the patients have been uh, put in the middle and had to to look for other health care opportunities or could no longer go to their physician because they were no longer in network due to insurance changes or insurance being on hold <laughs> because of negotiations, yeah, etc. And, and and so, you know, ultimately I would I would say that, you know, failure is a part of our our success, right? If you don't mm-hmm. fail then you can't understand how to grow and recover from it. You you won't understand how to achieve your goals. I don't know of anybody that's tried something for the first time and everything went exactly according to plan, right? Mm -hmm. So um, through failures, you have to understand that it's a temporary setback, right? You got to be able to recover from it quickly, bounce back forward, and, and, and continue to keep yourself motivated and focused. That's pretty much what resiliency is about. I feel that everybody is built with a certain level of resiliency and you have to decide and you have to choose every day if if something doesn't go according to plan, how are you going to pivot? Is this going to be a crutch or is it going to be a stepping stool? You get to choose every day. Mm-hmm. 
That's absolutely, absolutely right. Yes, uh, that's a great tidbit. So failure has taught you that you won't understand how to achieve your goals uh, if you never really failed at something. So it allows you to stay focused. I love that. What about success? You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, I'm successful in this realm or I've been able to accomplish this. But what has it really taught you? So, so honestly, success really taught me that that is an individual definition, right? It's an individual mm-hmm. definition of what you consider success to be. So success for you is going to look a lot different than it looks for me. At mm-hmm. one point in time, I had a person ask me, are you the most successful person, you know, in your family, in your circle? And I said, well, I don't know how to answer that. And they said, well, why don't you know how to answer it? I said, because the way I define success is going to look different from now. You know, if if you got married and you had two kids and, you know, you're happy with your job, you may consider that successful, right? That's their mm-hmm. definition of success. There's, that's their definition. You know, my definition of success could look something different. Actually, it does look a lot different. So I, I feel as though I've been successful in goals that I set forth for myself to achieve, one of which is, you know, my personal goals uh, with finance. I'm, I feel that I'm successful in that aspect. I feel that I've been very successful with the businesses, Shoshana Tabell Consulting, consulting with small businesses, um, bringing down how do they become good to great. So these are pretty much entrepreneurs that's been in their business for a while. They could be people that have their own clothing company. They can have their own uh, hair salon or a travel agency. And, you know, they're good at what they do. So I know that entrepreneurs, you know, my hairstylist, she's been doing my hair for 20-some-odd years, and she's really great at it. But how do we take your business from good to great? So, mm-hmm. so making small steps equals taking small steps equals big results. So how do we maximize this and bring it to the next level? Revenue is kind of what we do there. And talk a little bit about success with Thomas Rehab. So Thomas Rehab is a uh, rehabbing company that my brother wanted to actually start and begin. And his name is Richard Thomas and he's the CEO of Thomas Rehab. And he and I'm the CFO and co-founder. And he, um, after several you know, failed opportunities in corporate America and working different various jobs, he decided he wanted to be an entrepreneur. And um, we talked about how hard entrepreneurship was and how you had to have a go-getter, keep-going mentality. And, you know, he was just determined with skill and will to go ahead and do that. After having worked from someone um, in a rehabbing capacity, he learned the certain skills that he needed. And, you know, we have this model, you know, that we believe in each one, teach one, and bring one. And so mm-hmm. as um, this person was helping him build his uh, his skill set in rehabbing, he's been able to build his, you know, we've been able to build this company. He's been able to bring um, people on and teach them the skills of general rehab, contracting, concrete work. And so Thomas Rehab has been successful. We have large contracts, one of which is with Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing, and uh, responsible for doing all the make-readies, vacancy preps, um, any landscaping work, concrete work. Um, Currently have 16 employees, and the contracts are just growing. So um, that's another capacity in which I would define successful. You know, um, it's successful at this point. 
Um, is there an opportunity to keep growing and getting additional business and make it even more successful? Absolutely. So I feel like success is determined where you are in your life, um, if you set a goal and you achieved it, and um, how successful you're doing at that point in time. Absolutely, absolutely. You create your own success. Don't look at somebody else's lane and feel like you have to do that, be that, uh, because, again, success looks different for everybody. I absolutely love that. What role has mentors and advocates played on your progression of your career? And a, a second part of that would be, have you taken any risks or bold moves with your career based off the expertise that you receive from mentors and or advocates? Okay, great question. So one of my very first mentors started off at um, when I was at uh, Humana, and I had been at Humana for 13 years. So at the time in which I was getting mentored by my current boss, he was actually transitioning to a new organization, another healthcare company itself, and um, he was transitioning out, but he gave me some key things and some vital things that he felt that I should work on, but he also um, told me I should interview and look at opportunities. Um, since I had been at Humana so long, I had what I would call, you know, this complacency or a comfort level that I didn't really want to look outside of the company. I had been with the company for such a long time and had progressed through probably uh, seven or eight positions at that point, and um, I was kind of just really comfortable. And so uh, one of the things I learned as he continued to mentor me about um, being, uh, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, sometimes you're not really comfortable with learning something new, going to a new organization. Um, you, it's, it's uncomfortable, right? Because you're going right. into the unexpected. You don't know what to expect. Um, at the time in which I was trying to determine whether or not I wanted to uh, transition over to UC Health, it was a new job. It was a new role. It was um, something that I was going to have to create and define my own self. Um, that's what the hiring manager told me. You kind of kind of create this job. You kind of kind of drive the strategy. You have to, you know, build it. And um, that was a little bit uncomfortable for me. Um, I had been in an organization where strategy was established and I needed to go execute. So now you're asking me to come outside my comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing um, that was vital that my uh, mentor advised me at the time, um, I, I really didn't know how to negotiate my salary. I was at a company that just was like, oh, with each promotion, this is the max, so this is what you get, you know? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I was uncomfortable with that. So, um, he taught me some foundational things that, you know, if, if closed, basically closed mouths don't get fed. So how do you negotiate a salary, um, and, and what does the total package look like? You know, are you negotiating a sign-on bonus? Are you getting a bonus? Are you asking for additional vacation time? Are you asking for um, any other perks that you want at the time in addition to that compensation and how important it was just to ask for stuff. And I asked for it not not expecting to get any of it. Um, And they actually gave it to me. It was like that was something very vital advice that they gave me. It's like, you know, you have to ask for these things. Now, the company can very well come back and say no, but if you don't ask, you will never know. Right. And so, um, 
you know, that is one of the things that um, my first mentors taught me. One of my second um, mentors um, that was a woman actually taught me is actually how to manage up. So I've been in situations where I had bosses that, you know, I consider to be very micromanaging, very, you know, got to be involved in everything, not really giving me the ability to lead. And for whatever reason, it wasn't that they didn't feel that I was capable of doing a job, but, you know, they you have to recognize that everything is not about you. Some other people have and carry some insecurities that have nothing to do with you, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you manage up a situation that you feel is uncomfortable? How do you get in front of that? So, you know, teaching me some different techniques on how to engage with my manager at the time be open and honest about communication and feedback, giving them information before it even gets, you know, to the point where they need to ask and feel like they need to micromanage. So really managing up has been key. Just recently in the last month or so, I was talking to one of my mentors that I have at work. I think it's important to have mentors inside and outside of the organization in which you're working in professionally and personally. And I have always been one that looks at opportunities to grow and understand different parts of the business and how the business is working or operating. And so I may ask questions about different service lines, maybe orthopedic, maybe musculoskeletal. I'm just asking different questions. I'm sitting down with different leaders, understanding, you know, just, you know, what they do, why they do it. I'm just trying to increase my knowledge. I also look for, you know, organizational development areas that I can grow in so I can continue to grow and mentor my team. But for some reason, anytime I had a conversation with someone outside my department, it would get back to my boss. And uh, (laughs) my boss would think that I was out here, like, interviewing different departments because I'm trying to get out of the rim and I'm just trying to get out. And I'm like, well, that's not true. I'm just trying to, you know, build my own skill and keep my own self I'm kind of engaged and ahead of the curve and where the organization is going and understand fully where the organization is going. So I asked my mentor, I said, well, how, 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 you know, how would I deal with this situation? Every time I have a meeting, she finds out about it, and then she comes back and, you know, it's a sense of anxiety or worry because she thinks that I'm, you know, jumping ship or I'm going here. And he said, well, where's your contingency? Where's your, where's your secession plan? And I said, well, I'm working on it. He's like, so so who's going to be in your role if you leave tomorrow? Do you have someone on your team that can readily go into your role? And I said, no, I've been working on doing He was like, well, that's your problem. He was like, this is your issue. You create an anxiety for yourself and for her because there's a level of anxiety that's going to come when you have such a big role Um, that you feel, and if you were to leave that role, you're leaving a huge gap. So, of course, that's going to create some anxiety for her. And the fact that you don't have someone prepared to kind of walk in and sit in your steps, and that's problematic too. So what you need to focus on is your succession plan and making sure you're building someone that can readily step into that area, which led into another conversation about what I kind of mentioned earlier, hiring smart and talented because, you know, uh, our organization itself has gone over a lot of turnover within the last year, um, specifically in my department too. And we're really under this this focus of, you know, managing out low performers. So we have a high, solid, low 
tight methodology, and we've really been managing out low performers. And, you know, we're trying to get our solids to high and keep our high and retain them. And so with that being said, there's been a lot of turnover in my department, and, you know, I'm just really trying to focus on who has the potential and how I can continue to build upon that potential. But, yeah, that's one of the cre- uh, one of the key indicators that my recent mentor shared with me. It's like, you know, you have to learn how to manage anxiety in a different way, and part of that is you being more prepared. So that was a good good advice. A lot of times in healthcare, we we don't necessarily do a great job of succession planning. Hence, why we are seeing more and more people retire, and and not anyone being able to readily move into their positions. So right. that was great, great advice from your mentor. Tashana, besides being a dynamic leader, you're also a published author. So congratulations to you. Thank you. <laughs> Very exciting. So earlier this year, you became a best-selling author of the book, It Takes Money, Honey, Guaranteed Strategies to Wealth Creation, Proven Tips for Financial Freedom, and Developing Faith. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about this book and how they can get it? Sure. So the the book, It Takes Money, Honey, is a 365-day devotional, again, dedicated to freedom, faith, and finances. And one of the reasons I chose to get involved with the collaboration, because all of these things are core values in my life, right? Freedom, faith, and finances. So um, one of the things is, you know, you define what freedom looks like, right? And so mm-hmm. being free, to me, means being the best version of yourself and not actually taking on Freedom is a mindset. So how can you set your mind free from worry? How can you set your mind free from debt? How can you free your mind from anxiety? So once you free yourself from all of those things and you have faith to do that, right, you can pretty much do anything. I'm a huge believer in financial freedom and stability, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved with the project. I have about a week in the devotional, and in that, I kind of talk about everything um, that we kind of discussed here. One of the um, people, one one person's quote that I really um, like and who has helped me on this journey of financial freedom is Dave Ramsey. He says, if you live like no one else, you can live like no one else. And so Mm -hmm. to me, what that means is, you know, you're going to have to make certain sacrifices in your life that other people are not making. And once you do that, you can live like other people don't, other people don't live, right? You can, you can mm-hmm. live an opposite life with that. And so I started my financial freedom journey. I actually purchased my first house when I was 19 years old. I purchased my second house by the time I was 22 years old. It was a two-family house. Um, because I had this financial freedom plan that I was going to become a millionaire by the time I was 55. So I was going to buy 10 properties, sell each one of them for $100,000, pay on them for 30 years, and by the time I was done, I was a millionaire about 55, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was my plan. It didn't work out as planned, but, hey, it was a good one. So I still, you know, have those properties. But one of the things I learned on that journey is really how to manage my money. And when I say manage, I mean plan it and not spend it. And so a lot of people just spend money, spend money, spend money. But if you plan it, then you can get ahead in life so much more. So I plan to be completely financially free of all 
uh, mortgage, and, and I really just have a mortgage at this point. In the next three and a half years, I will owe no one but, you know, CG&E or Duke Energy when I turn it on or Cincinnati Waterworks. I'm here. <laughs> Those are only people I owe. So in this financial uh, freedom journey, I've been able to pay off, you know, over $50,000 in student loan debt, vehicles. I own all my vehicles. Rental properties will be kind of paid for, no credit card debt, no revolving debt. I plan the money I spend. I don't live beyond my means or above my means. And it is certainly a journey. It did not happen overnight. You, uh, small steps again equals big results. And so if you take these small steps to um, ensure your financial freedom, you can actually get there. So a lot of my tips are about finances, but it's also about faith and it's also about freedom. And um, you can get this book, actually. Um, You can get the book online on Amazon.com. I have an affiliate link on my Instagram page where you can order the book online. Also, you can email me. Facebook me, Instagram me, get on my website, um, Shano Cabell Consulting, and um, kind of tell me you want a copy of the book, and I'll make sure I get it mailed out to you. So um, that's the book. And, um, yeah, so that, that's where you get the book from. Well, that's exciting. That's, all of those topics are, are very great topics and, and, and core value topics. I like that small steps equal big results, and that can apply to a lot of things in life, whether mm-hmm. it is with your finances, whether it's with your faith, whether it's with your career, whether it's, I mean, it's just kind of universal. Uh, but I, I think that's awesome that you've made those sacrifices uh, to have that financial freedom. I actually had a guest on uh, probably back in April, and it was a, a guy, Cedric, and that's exactly what he talked about, financial freedom. He said he planned to retire by the time he was the age of 50. And he said, but part of that, you know, discussion with his wife and, and himself, uh, for him to be able to do that is they had to be able to have, you know, close to a million dollars in the bank as well, you know, and so you know, for him to be able to, you know, retire and and all of that good stuff. And he talked about his journey up until then, and now he is retired. And he's traveling the world and living life, and and I think that's outstanding, you know, just talking about uh, some of those small things you can do today to have that financial freedom for tomorrow. So kudos to you, and kudos to him, too. (laughs) (laughs) that that's that's awesome because sometimes it you know it it takes patience you know it takes you know the ability to be firm especially when your friends want you to spend uh and you're on a different path uh so it 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 takes courage too to to really be able to think outside the box and do something uh different especially when it comes to a taboo topic uh such as finance So in a time where we are asked to do more, serve more, give more, be the best, and the list goes on, one's core values can be compromised in the process of trying to elevate their career and position in the workplace. What advice would you give to our listeners who are struggling to balance career and maintain a sense of self? So um, great question. I would actually recommend that they um, 
take the time to make the time. And so um, when you're dealing with work-life balance or maintaining a sense of self, you have to continue to do what you love. You have to find something other than work that continues to serve you because it's an essential part of, like, who you will be and who you will become. So um, I would encourage, you know, taking multiple breaks throughout the day. I would encourage, um, you know, uh, managing your sense of mind because anxiety can creep up and, um, you know, try to meditate, continue to read books, to encourage um, your educational and your career path. I will also recommend um, getting a business coach. Um, Trying to get a business coach will help you get rid of some of those bad habits, implement good habits, and give you a sense of, you know, when you're at work, take this time to be dedicated to work, and then when you're not at work, free your mind from it and invest in yourself. Um, So um, one of the things that I'm working on with my team right now is called a habits training and how do we get out of bad habits. So now I have this um, thing where we're holding each other accountable. No one is to call anyone or send an email before 7 a.m. No one is to call anyone or send an email after 6 p.m. We have to create a work-life balance. You know, we get our team member engagement scores that we had to take as an organization. And um, I was performing well in all areas, and every last member of my team said that they were stressed out, that they couldn't free their mind from work when they left work, and they lose sleep over work. And I do too. So (laughs) making sure we create that sense of a healthy boundary and get into different habits so that um, we can make sure that we create that work-life balance, you know. Mm-hmm. And you, I think it's also important to kind of um, build your network and nurture, nurture your network. So getting outside of your space when you're outside of work, everything doesn't have to kind of be about work. But if you want to expand and grow in other areas or you want to even create your own business, you have to be able to network and network within your network. And when I say network, I'm not just talking about going out getting a business card. I'm talking about making a true connection, connecting with someone, asking for a drink or a coffee after work or, you know, to go out for lunch or something and make that true connection and figure out how you can leverage that connection. Awesome. So, Tashana, how can our listeners stay connected with you and continue to follow you on your leadership journey and learn about all the amazing things that you're doing? Um, so there's several ways. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Tashana Otavio Consulting. Um, I have a Facebook um, page, uh, Tashana Ann. I have a website, com. Also, you can look for me on my next journey because I'm in the Trailblazers for Leadership um, book that's coming out. That's actually, you know, our visionary author is actually um, you, you yourself, Kawana. So thanks for including me in that collaboration so you can see um, that that's coming out next. Also, we talked about the third book called Hidden Pain, which is a personal story of resiliency. And so I'll be launching that soon too. So I hope you all stay connected. Um, to my social media pages and posts, and um, please reach out to me if you have any questions, concerns, looking for mentorship and or guidance, or even need some advice on your small business. Um, So thank you for allowing me to be on the show today and um, continue to talk to people, and I appreciate your time. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Tashana, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to give me the opportunity to interview you. It was definitely an honor and a pleasure to have you as a guest. So many blessings and much continued success on your journey with all of your projects, your businesses, and future endeavors. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Anytime. Together, we are better. So thank you, listener audience, for tuning in to tonight's show with our special guest, Tashana Thomas Otabil, where she shared with us, relationship building is very important. Know your why and your walk away so that when you're in different situations, if you're in negotiations, if you're in uh, any kind of networking, that you understand the, the reasoning uh, for why you're there and what you hope to gain when you walk away. Listening is critical. Managing up is important. So not just managing down, but managing up. Small steps equal big results. And this can apply in both our personal and professional life. Mentors help with skills that we may be lacking. So they can help us understand company culture. They can help us be advocates for ourselves. They can help us with negotiations, especially with our salaries if we're not comfortable with that. Remember, success looks different for everybody. Develop healthy healthy habits and build and develop your networks, establishing true connections. Take the time to make the time for self. So managing your, your sense of mind, your sense of being, don't be afraid to get a business coach. And you have to understand how to achieve your goals especially if you fail. So failure will teach you how to achieve your goals and how to stay focused. So those are just a few of the tidbits uh, that Tashana shared. If you like what you heard tonight and want to listen to previous shows, subscribe at www.podcast.coachtwilson.com. You can also submit your interest to be interviewed on this show, just like Tashana did uh, via the same website, always looking for guests to share with our listening audience. So please tune in next week to hear from another amazing leader. Until then, have a good evening. Thank you, friends, for tuning in to another episode of Leadership Tidbits with Coach T. Wilson, where Taiwana speaks with leaders who share nuggets of wisdom that you can use in your personal and professional life. Follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Coach T. Wilson. Connect on LinkedIn or visit www.coachtwilson.com. And remember, in life, learn as much as you can, appreciate often, and lead fearlessly.